This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Happy to be joined on the show by uh, a gentleman that joined us a little while back. He's a criminal lawyer. Sharif Foda joins us on Toronto Today. It's great to have you back, and I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me. What'd you make of some of the occurrences yesterday? Uh, obviously, news leaked out that there were going to be charges. What are the next steps for these players and their lawyers, Sharif? So my understanding is that this investigation has been going on for a while. They've been likely represented by counsel for quite some time. In Ontario, there isn't what we call pre-charge screening. That means when the police decide to make an arrest, they arrest. Um, the gentleman will be um, asked to surrender, is my understanding. So they'll, they'll be asked to come into the station. Police will uh, formally arrest them. The charge is not laid until the charging document is presented to the court. Once that's done then it's in the hands of the Crown Attorney's Office, prosecutors. So like I said, in some provinces, prosecutors take a look at the charges before there's a charge laid, not in Ontario. Mm -hmm. So the Crown Attorney's Office actually is going to start getting a look at the police file once um, the gentleman has surrendered and the court case has begun. That's when the prosecutors really start digging into it. Um, This is also something where, uh, and it seemed like London police sources were speaking to people I know uh, pretty closely saying it's fairly clear they have full cooperation of, um, of the accuser at this point. It wouldn't get to this point if they thought we can't count on her for testimony or she's not all in on telling us what happened. Would that make sense? Yeah, I mean, um, look, technically, when the case, when the prosecution is going ahead, the case is between the sovereign and the accused. So in our case here, it would be the king and the accused. And the complainant, the accuser, uh, is only really a witness. Now, witnesses don't have to cooperate. They can. Cases can proceed without a witness's cooperation. There are ways of trying to proceed even if they're not cooperating. But it's always helpful for the prosecutors if witness is cooperative and makes their lives easier. Um, but in domestic assault cases or sexual assault cases, even without a witness's cooperation, you often see prosecutors proceeding. It's one of those scenarios as well where I'm sure when you get asked to explain this case to somebody who doesn't know anything about it, it kind of takes 20 minutes, doesn't it? Because there's it, it's not just because of the time that, that has uh, transpired here, Sharif. It's, we're talking almost five years from the alleged assault, five years from the time the team was together. But obviously, Hockey Canada's um, you know gotten into the muck as well with paying off the alleged uh, accuser, letting some of these players, uh, suspending them from international duty. But not also but paying them, paying the uh, uh, excuse me, paying the accuser before players even get their due process. There's a lot of layers to this that are kind of messy. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is one of the reasons why I think the investigation likely took a very long time is because the authorities likely knew that it would be very high profile and they didn't want the case to be tossed for delay once right. the case sort of started. So in, we see in those kinds of cases um, and because, you know, it's not like these guys are going to run away. None of them are going to flee. They're, we don't know who they are, but, you know, they're likely people who are going to cooperate with the authorities and surrender. And if that's the case, then it's mm-hmm. in the authorities' interest to do a very, very, very thorough investigation and only lay charges once they've come to a conclusion on their end. Because once they lay the charges, then the clock starts ticking, what we call Jordan delay. You might remember the Supreme Court released a decision in 2016 Mm -hmm. about delays uh, that has sort of made a lot of news because a lot of cases get tossed because of a delay. And so that 
clock only starts ticking once the charge has formally been laid, once the charging documents before the court. And then if the court goes to a provincial court trial, they have 18 months to try it. If it goes to superior court, it's 30 months. So it's in their interest to have everything, all their ducks in a row before the prosecutors get their hands on the file. I need a quick answer if you can, but is it possible, even though we won't hear from London police until February 5th, is it possible a player turns himself in today, tomorrow, the next day? They're not all going to come on the same day at the same time, are they? Uh, that all, yeah, exactly. That all depends on the nego- the particular negotiations between um, the police and likely their counsel. So often, what we do is we say, "Hey, you know, Thursday works good for my particular client. Can he come in mm-hmm. at two o'clock?" And 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 we'll discuss with the police what are the release conditions going to be, et cetera. So it's very possible it's happening in the next few days. Thanks for the time, Sharif. Appreciate it. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Brad, it's great to have you on Toronto Today. Thanks for making the time. Hey, Greg, good morning. How are you? What do you make of that? I'm great. What do you make of that? We've got a little bit, and this is probably, um, uh, the police budget is maybe one of the most political things imaginable, isn't it? Everybody has a different opinion about what we spend on police, even without knowing all the practicalities about it, wouldn't you say? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think the public view a cut to or or no increase, let's just say, no increase to the police budget as a uh, as a safety uh, concern or as a risk. So um, it is a very complex budget. And uh, look, the, the city of Toronto, like many municipalities in Ontario, um, but but the city especially faces, um, you know, incredible uh, cost increases, but very limited opportunities for revenue, um, property taxes are the the main one and uh they do they're they're what they call a regressive tax right they don't grow Mm. with the economy so um it's it's a it's a very very difficult uh fine line to to walk and uh yeah so politically um uh you know it's it's uh you got sort of two sides right one one increase to police uh to policing and the police budget and uh, others say no they they get far too much you got to cut it so uh i don't i don't envy mayor chow and her uh in her efforts a weird one too because people get framed as well i'm pro-police well i'm anti-police well that doesn't make any sense there's a lot of layers to that we need law enforcement laws need to be enforced but some people may say we need to scrutinize the budget a little bit more i always use the phrase look under the hood of the car and sometimes the police are like hey just trust us and write us the check <laughs> for sure yes i mean you know the, the police chief's job is to uh, ensure that uh, that he or she and in this case he has the resources uh, needed to to do everything he possibly can do to ensure that uh, the city is safe, and so that means that they want they need me need more resources. That means more money, um, and then you know uh, at city hall, then there are uh, you know the the, um, uh, the 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 people who are crunching the numbers are saying, well, can you do a little more with less and 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 try this and try that, and so it, yeah, it's super complex, Greg, and uh, certainly not something that. Uh, uh, you know, you can solve on the back of a napkin, that's for sure. Brad Ross is our guest on Toronto Today. You've seen a lot of, um, how would I put it, contentiousness between uh, regarding the TTC, and you know that file well. So whether it's been uh, Rick Leary, the CEO, not seeing eye to eye with the chair, who's city councilor as well, Jamal Myers, um, there was a little bit of what looked like to many a coup attempt to move Rick Leary out, but then the city would get, you know, would get some flack for making a large payout and replacing Rick Leary and starting from scratch. What do you see when it comes to transit in the city? Again, it's it's something you'd have insight on. I think a lot of our listeners would appreciate. Well, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I think 
coming out of the the pandemic was uh, was was so crushing to so many and to so many businesses, but particularly to public transit, not just in Toronto, but uh, around the world. And so uh, the TTC is now finally, uh, I think uh, I, I saw something recently that uh, coming back to you know, almost 95% of, of uh, ridership pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's very, very good news. That bodes well. Uh, I think with, with all of the congestion that we see and, and, uh, and, and the construction that we see that that getting people back onto transit is going to be critical to the TTC's success, to the city's success, to reduce congestion by having more people on transit. So um, I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, the, the, the construction that is happening with the Ontario line, for example, while the TTC isn't building it, um, they ultimately, and the people of Toronto ultimately will will benefit from it. Eglinton Crosstown, I, you know, is very close to finally opening. Oh, you're just uh, saying that. That'll <laughs> Be good news for everybody in that, including the TTC, who will be operators. But yeah, very close. Uh, it looks like anyway. Um, e-scooters are fascinating to me because uh, Toronto's got bike lanes, uh, much debated, right? Uh, that they put there's been more bike lanes and less bike lines. And for a city so worried about congestion, Brad, I often think, okay, well, are you all in or are you not? Because these devices could be used by food couriers. They could be used by kids going to university classes instead of driving mom or dad's car, depending on the weather. Um, There's a lot of cities that have allowed it and made it work. It can be a revenue tool as well. Right now, e-scooters are still illegal in Toronto. Do you think there's a push within city council to make them legal? Yeah, I'm not, I don't know, Greg, and, and how much e-scooters are, are on people's agenda. Um, I certainly uh, have been to other cities where I've seen them. And what I will say is that, and maybe they've fixed this now. I was in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and, you know, you think, you get these e-scooters and you ride them from A to B, and then you just drop them somewhere. And a lot of them get dropped in the middle of the sidewalk. You got it. Right? No, no. I've been to four American cities where they just sit there, and you kind of got to yeah. walk around them. Uh, you could, If you weren't looking, you'd, you'd trip right over them. You got it. Uh, Absolutely. So I think that's a big issue uh, that that needs to get resolved. But I think ultimately, Greg, like anything where there's progress, eventually you're going to have to uh, get on board because uh, I don't think these things are going away. And I think the city needs to find a way to make them work. I hear you, Brad. We're out of time. Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I know. I get it. There's so many discussions when parents get together and they say, our kids are being indoctrinated. You get bring- You got to be careful with that kind of language. It can certainly get uh, arm. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of red meat for, for the right wing. And, and if you absolutely deny it, it seems red meat for the far left wing. So let's ask Jamie Sarkonic about this. She's a National Post contributor, and she's mentioned there's a new federally funded document that starts to that's going to go into classrooms potentially unless school boards say absolutely no. Jamie, I want to talk about this document. Is this is this an open minded document or is this something that seems closed off? Not really. It's it it puts forward its own idea of how reality is and it denounces, I would say, the common sense ideal of these kinds of things as being um, colonial, white supremacist, and all the bad words that we come to think of, um, when really these are very just common sense ideas. Um, one of the big ones is just the the sex binary, the fact that there are males and females. Biological sex is kind of a grab bag of features and no one 
characteristic in a in a body can determine if someone is a male or a female and you know to me these were long settled but to them it was a a matter of politics and this is the eurocentric ideal of a binary being asserted I sent your your story to a biology professor um, who I've known quite a while. Uh, I went to high school with her at, at McGill, and I sent it to her. And she was like, in about eight minutes, I got an email back of a couple paragraphs, just beside herself that this could get taught at at high school, pretty you know, in pretty important level of education to plan out the rest of your life. And she was beside herself because it's not. It's not even just about politics. It's not even what we describe as ideology, Jamie. It's it's really bad bio. It's really bad science. It's really bad biology. She couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm interested to hear that, but it's um, that does make quite a bit of sense because this stuff is as simple as saying, you know, the sky is blue. We we just there are some very basic facts that we can all agree on as as people, and and here is this from some mm -hmm. academic when it comes to the the one of the lead academics on this was a academic of uh, social justice education you know so that's not really an area of they don't have expertise in biology but here they are talking to teachers this document is designed to teach teachers how to teach and it just isn't really based in reality at all i i, I get the idea and and maybe you maybe you'd concur maybe you wouldn't that um it's uh, there, there's a lot of juggling for people in high school classrooms right now, saying the right things, doing the right things. I know I had teachers, you know, mostly in the social sciences in high school, and they'd wade into politics. They'd comment on an election the night before or a major issue or the, or the Quebec referendum. I remember that in, in 95. So I, I don't doubt that they're dealing with the, – there's a little bit of walking on eggshells, and they're being cautious. But I also think to turn – you know, a kit like this over to them and say, just press the easy button and, and teach this. Um, I, I think a lot of parents, after reading your story, would have a real struggle with some of the ideas pushed into it. Uh, yeah, I would think so. If I was a parent, I I would think that as well. I would want my my kids to play well with other kids and to feel accepted as they are. But this is going above and beyond on a whole other level because it's it's teaching ideology it's saying that this basic thing that you and everyone you know agree on is is a lie that is based on uh evil eurocentric uh strict binaries and and that's not even necessarily true because you know gender the idea of men and women is common to all cultures like you can't find a culture that doesn't have men and women and, and male roles and female roles. It's just such a basic thing. You know, the way each group does it maybe is a little bit differently, but, you know, we could all agree that these are different things. And um, and if a kid doesn't fit exactly into one or the other, generally that's fine too. I mean, that's mm -hmm. nothing abnormal. And, you know, we just need to teach kids not to bully, not to be mean, don't attack another kid in your class for something they can't control. I think that that's what I was taught. That's what my parents were taught. That's what I hope to teach my kids. Like that, that's what a great message, but no, they've gone, these academics in this particular document have gone a step way further and said, no, let's alter just the complete, the way we teach reality needs to be altered to fit um, 0 0.3 or something percent of the population. And I, 
I just think that's ridiculous. And I, I, I don't think most people are even remotely asking for this either. No. Jamie Sarconics, our guest, uh, her columns in the National Post um, uh, in the last day or so. So I encourage you to go to nationalpost.com and, and check it out there. When you get feedback on stories like this and and on what you're able to report and then what you're able to um, opine on, do you find there's some movement in who you hear from? I, I'm finding there's more people that would deem themselves, Jamie, um, small L liberals people that are left of center, people that that would would have one point called themselves progressive. And I just feel like the sands are shifting a little bit in terms of people saying, you know what, warning bells were were uh, were sounded about this kind of stuff. But I just thought they're, you know, it, it, it's the far right. It's it's tropes. These are actually practical parents who just want to raise, as we were saying, raise their kids the right way responsibility, hard work, independence, treat everybody fairly. Are you starting to hear from more of those people, maybe even in the last six months than you did previously? Oh, definitely. Yes. And I I feel like I kind of was there, my like classical liberal kind of beliefs. I was there uh, two years ago, three years ago, even. So, mm -hmm. you know, the more you actually read what is being funded, you know, the, I'm not reading this third hand from some news website. I'm just looking at the actual document itself. And and when other people see that document themselves, they kind of think the same thing, I think. And yeah, and absolutely I'm getting feedback like that from 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 people who would have said, you know, I would have been I would have been called a liberal 10 years ago. Now I don't know what I'm called, but they're concerned about this because, you know, they want everyone to be accepted, but they don't want a, a school system to become radically altered to accept this rather new concept of identity that doesn't really cohere with most people. That's Jamie Sarkonic in the National Post. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Now the CEO of Daisy Group, and you hear him on 640 a lot, is Warren Kinsella. Am I wrong about that? What's the big deal? Tucker Carlson comes up to Alberta, but I can't stand Alberta being as if they're just 95% conservative. We're not talking Alabama, Warren. We're not. It's Alberta, not yeah. Alabama. No, and I just want to say at the top, I'm not that old. Like I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> we're all um, we're all we were all younger in 1993. That was my thesis, and I'm sticking to it mathematically. But yeah, like you know, I'm in Alberta. I grew up in Calgary, and uh, I was a liberal surrounded by a sea of conservatives. And you know, you either choose to be lonely or you make friends with the conservatives, so you're not as lonely. And uh, you know, back then it was the Peter Lougheed era, and Lougheed was a progressive conservative, and he was a, a decent man, and he won majority after majority after majority for years. This new breed that is running the province is different, and this is why I think they've invited Tucker Carlson, or at least they've allowed themselves to be photographed alongside him. I think she'll come to regret that. You do? Uh, yeah, for this reason. Like, you know, the selfie, the selfie era, I, I guess it works for the person who gets to keep the selfie, but it rarely does for the politicians. You know, Rob Ford... Um, back in the day, standing unknowingly, you know, unwittingly, but beside a neo-Nazi, you know, or, uh, you know, it, it's happened many, many times. And so what's going to happen is as soon as Tucker Carlson says something really outrageous and stupid, at least by a Canadian standard, someone's going to bring it up and put it in Danielle Smith's face. And, and they may do that at a time that's really unhelpful to her, i.e. like an election. 
So, like, I, I think these selfies are worth, um, they're just nothing but trouble. I, I understand why yeah. politicians have to do it. But, like, getting your picture beside uh, Tucker Carlson, well, you're just waiting for the next bomb to drop when he says something outrageous or racist or extreme. Well, Paul, I've got photographed in the summer next to somebody with a bit of an incendiary T-shirt, but I'm going to have a tough time painting him specifically as some kind of homophobe when Melissa Lansman's his deputy leader and and the history is there with Pierre's father. You're going to have a tough time doing that, but like you said, it's a no-win situation to just start shaking hands. You're pretty safe. Photographs well, live forever. Is- the and you know and for sure absolutely you know Pierre's dad is is gay and uh, nobody would ever credibly accuse him of being homophobic, but you know I'm a war room guy. What war room people do is we break the campaign up into thirty you know increments, thirty days, and our objective is to throw the other side off their message you know for as many days as we can. So if I can get uh, you know the other guy's campaign chasing their tail on a dumb photograph that probably doesn't mean anything in the big scheme of things. But if I can eat up two days, that is a huge victory because that's two days that they haven't had to tell their message. I sure want that's a few. A, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Finish up. Yeah. No, and that that's what a war room does. So like, you know, she's handed Smith has handed the, uh, the Alberta NDP a couple days to mess with her agenda in the next election campaign. Um, I did want to I I certainly want to get into Justin Trudeau. But since we're in this uh, realm right now, this idea and it looks like it's a war room plan from the federal liberals to paint Pierre Polyev as uh, as Canada North Donald Trump. I'm just I'm I'm sorry. I'm just scoffing at this. I don't think you're going to convince one human being not to vote conservative that wasn't already by painting him as Trump. Nobody could possibly see those parallels to me. But that's me saying that. Is it good strategy? Uh, it well, let's put it this way: <clears throat> they've done it before, and it's worked. You know, in 2015, Donald Trump wasn't president yet, but he was the Republican nominee, and they tagged Stephen Harper with kind of being kind of Trumpy, mm-hmm. and it worked. And then in 2019, they did it again with Andrew Scheer when Trump was president, and it worked. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah, I think it, it 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 works. And is it ridiculous? It, you know, to some extent it is, but so is politics. Like there are mm-hmm. elements of Pierre's past, you know, being against abortion, the World Economic Foundation, you know, conspiracy theories, you know, yelling at the media all the time. Those are pretty Trumpy. And um, so, I, again, it's does it win your whole campaign? Like I said a minute ago, no. But if you throw the conservative campaign off by a week, you know, talking about how they're not Donald Trump, well, that's a week where they haven't been able to talk about health care or national defense or an important issue. So could it work? Well, it's worked in the past. All right. So one liberal MP uh, and he's walking this back already this morning. So we got Jan under the auspices that Ken McDonald was. Let's review Justin Trudeau's leadership. He's kind of walked it back in a statement saying uh, it's not what I'm looking for right there. I want to express my views. But he did document in a report yesterday and we played the clip earlier as he describes it. There's, quote, almost a hatred out there right now for Trudeau. Have you seen anything quite like it? Brian Mulroney's end came very quickly. Um, Pierre Trudeau's game came very quickly in 84. Have you seen anything quite like this for Justin? Yeah, it's well for Justin, not so much. And there's a reason for that, but it happens to everybody. You know, at a certain point, you've got a member from Timmins and his name is Greg Brady and Greg figures out, you know what? 
I don't think I'm going to get into cabinet. Well, I'm just going to go for broke and start with saying what I think and try and save my hide at the time of the next election. So that does happen. And it happens to everybody from Harper to Mulroney to Kretschamp, all of the ones who were big winners. It's happened to them. The difference is a qualitative difference with the Trudeau guys. He brought these people from third place to first. That is his biggest political achievement. That was a huge political achievement. And so, you know, all of them are pensioned out now. They've got their six best years, so they've got pensions until, yeah. you know, they're old as the hills. So they owe him a lot. So this is why I think you haven't seen many acts of rebellion against him, because they all know if they've got any brains at all, that as things stand now and as things have stood for the past six months, they're all going down. Right they're, they're going to lose. It's a, it's lose a bloodbath. Like, it's a bloodbath. Yeah. And that makes me think it's possible, Warren, that he quits not next week or next month. But um, but they there's clearly MPs thinking out there. It's my butt on the line. Uh, I You'd be walking through a constituency, same thing, said, hey, I like you, your boss. This is why I can't vote for you this time around. 100%. I totally agree with that because, you know, it's not quite so much – they have a leadership candidate that they favor because this is the first mm-hmm. time in, on, in the, the history of the Liberal Party of Canada where there hasn't been an obvious successor sitting in the wings. You know, people talk about Champagne, they talk about Jolie, but they're just nowhere near where they need to be. You know, public don't yeah. know who they are. So I think it's exactly what you say. Anybody who's getting up on their hind legs and bleeding yeah. that it's time for Trudeau to go, and there's not many of them, it's, it's all about saving their own hide, not about saving the Liberal Party. Great chat. Thanks for the insight. Thanks, my friend. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Should a politician lose his or her job if they're found guilty of harassing staff? It's a very fair and honest question. There's a lot of legalities to it. At first, it looked like the Ford government wasn't terribly interested in a private member's bill from our next guest. And now they seem to be. Let's welcome on Liberal MP Stephen Blay joining us uh, on Toronto today. It's great to have you on and thanks for making the time. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Tell us about the genesis of this. You pushed this uh, into uh, Queen's Park and you didn't get the reaction maybe you were hoping for from the provincial government. How did you view it? Yeah, that's right. So I was on Ottawa City Council before being elected to Queen's Park. And uh, right as I was leaving City Council, one of my colleagues uh, was accused of some very serious uh, sexual harassment of, of several employees spanning years and years and years. Um, I'm not sure exactly who's listening at the moment, but some of it is a very explicit uh, kind of activity that, um, you know, I think none of us would want this to happen to our, our wives or sisters or daughters and when council eventually made some decisions about what happened there, uh, I think it was pretty pretty clear that everyone believed that he should lose his job if he had been working at a library or a hospital or at the Walmart or, or basically anywhere else in Ontario, he would have been fired immediately. And the, the stiffest penalty that was available under the legislation was to dock his pay for a little bit. But he still got to maintain his position of authority uh, in the community. He still was able to make decisions about the, the day-to-day lives of his constituents um, for the next you know, two and a half or three years following that. He still, be- he still built all of his pensionable years of, years of service. And uh, I think it became clear at that point that the legislation needed to change. And so when I was elected uh, to the legislature uh, a few months later, I started working on this process. I introduced the bill three times. Uh, it's failed uh, a, a number of times, as you mentioned. Uh, the government had indicated that uh, before the last vote that they were interested in pursuing something like this because 
uh, as mm. as it happens and as time goes on, we realize that Ottawa wasn't the only case. There were serious cases of harassment in Barrie, I, in Mississauga, and in, in small towns right across the province. On your Ottawa Council um, uh, tenure, did you look and say, I, I bet you, there, and I'll, I'll, I'll isolate this to men because I just will because we're two men talking. Sure. Did you say at any point in time to yourself, I, you know, in retrospect, I think we all have had our moments where we're like, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd said more. Did you have that moment yourself? And is that part of the reason you're really passionate about this? Yeah, 100 percent. You know, the mm-hmm. moment that I got elected to, to the legislature and uh, started talking about this, I had a I had a, a Zoom call with uh, the three women from Ottawa who, who kind of first came public. And I was like, look, I worked across the hall from you guys for, you know, at that point, six or seven years. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't know what was going on or maybe I was you know, had blinders on uh, to what was going on. We had a conversation about that. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to understand that there, there is a spectrum of harassment, right? There are the, there are the kind of maybe words or nicknames and stuff like that, that people might use that is clearly inappropriate. And then there's stuff like what happened in, in, in some of these bigger cities in Branton and Ottawa, where it is very clear that this behavior is inappropriate. It's bordering on, potentially being criminal. It's the kind of thing that anyone in Ontario would be fired for. And uh, I'm a big believer in democracy. People uh, vote and we, and we put these, uh, we put people in positions of enormous authority and respect Mm. and we put them on a pedestal a little bit in in the community. Um, They need to lead by example and they should be held to a higher standard. And right now in Ontario, they're held to a lower one. Stephen Blaze, our guest, uh, Liberal MPP, joining us on Toronto Today. Now, your situation in Ottawa sounds very cut and dry. It's obvious a listener might ask the question, how high does the bar have to be? And do you worry that that we can get enough of an independent arbiter? We can't. We always complain sometimes when the police investigate the police or there's a sports organization and they investigate things internally. We're like, maybe they don't have the right lens. Do we want politicians investigating politicians on really important career threatening stuff? It's important. Do you know what I mean? Like, do we get to the point where we can have something independent um, in terms of making sure everybody has due process? Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely don't want politicians investigating politicians because then it'll be used as a political weapon and it'll be what we see in the United States with what's going on right now with impeachment. It's just one after the other after the other party going back and forth. And that's why the bill that I proposed had a number of layers to it. One, if there was an allegation, uh, that allegation would be sent to the city's integrity commissioner. He or she would need to deem that it was um, significant enough and had enough merit to it to warrant an investigation. The integrity commissioner would then investigate, do their due diligence, gather the facts, et cetera, et cetera. If it rose to the to the the level of needing to lose your job, because again, there's a spectrum of harassment. I don't think everything someone might do that's inappropriate, you would lose your job for. If it rose to the level that you would need to lose your job, yeah. the council would then refer that to a judge. And a judge in a courtroom would have to hear the evidence. Obviously, the person would have the opportunity to defend themselves. And a judge would make the ultimate decision. If we are, if we are so jaded at this point that we don't think judges can be independent, the same judges that make decisions about murders and kidnappings and rapes every day, then I think you know we're in trouble. But uh, I, I think a judge is is, is pretty independent. Person. I want to go quickly with you on the last couple of things. Are you hopeful? Um, the Ford government's heard from the public. There's a lot of unity across party lines. All the leaders, Mike Schreiner, your leader, Bonnie Crombie, Mart Styles, they're all in on this. Does this look like this might get bipartisan support now uh, in the next few weeks? 
Yeah, well, look, we have all we have all the parties on board. We have some conservatives on board who uh, are just too, I, I guess, whipped to talk about it. We have the support of the Ontario uh, Association of Municipalities of Ontario, the Rural Ontario Municipal Association. Over 200 uh, cities and towns across the province have passed motions endorsing either the bill explicitly or the idea of having some process. The government has their own version of this bill because they were going to introduce it about a year and a half ago, and then it got shelved for political reasons. I hope the government's changed their mind. I have a feeling that the premier doesn't like it. I think he's 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 maybe remembering what happened to his brother uh, a few years ago, and maybe his brother might got caught up in all this. Um, I'm hoping they'll change their mind. And if there's an opportunity for us to bring it forward again ourselves, we're going to do that. We can't be having whipped conservatives, uh, Stephen. We just um, let me ask you about the uh, energy behind your party and what kind of year you hope twenty four is. Um, it's probably nice to have the leadership thing. You, it was an exciting campaign, a lot of good ideas from all the candidates. What are you hoping twenty twenty four brings for your party? You're not an official party. You obviously have a lot of room to make up uh, seats in the next election. Yeah. What happens in the next year? Yeah, look, we've had an exciting end of the year last year. We won uh, by-elections in Canada and Scarborough. Canada, the Liberals haven't won that riding in, in over 100 years. We had a dynamic and competitive leadership contest culminating with, with Bonnie, who is high energy, great ideas. Uh, she's already gone out there and raised over a million dollars in a month for the party. And we're going to be putting out some really exciting stuff uh, over, this, uh, over the course of 2024, getting ready, uh, recruiting candidates, having uh, policy conventions, and getting organized. You know, I think it's clear that we've got an enormous amount of momentum. And I think it's safe to say, as, as John Frazier said uh, a couple of months ago, and I think Bonnie said herself, we're back and we're not going anywhere. All right, Stephen Blay, thanks very much for the time this morning. Come on more often. I'd appreciate the chat. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 530. We are 640 Toronto.